from KHOL. This is Jackson Unpacked, our weekly podcast on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and around the Mountain West. I'm reporter Hannah Mersbach. Coming up on today's show, a new currency is available for Wyomingites. What this new currency does is it allows you to spend gold, one of the best, most valuable precious metals. Plus, an interview with the owner of Franco Snowshapes, which makes custom snowboards here in Jackson. I don't care if anyone else in the world likes your snowboard but you. As long as the person I made it for says my life has just been changed. That's what we do. But first, Wyoming's abortion ban is now headed to the state Supreme Court. As the battle over reproductive freedoms continues, we take a look inside the state's only clinic providing abortions. Phones ring and patients file through the waiting room at the Women's Health and Family Care Clinic in Jackson. It's a typical Wednesday at the clinic, which just so happens to be the only place to get an abortion in Wyoming. Jovanina Anthony is leading me through the clinic the way patients would come through. They would come into this room. The room has equipment for ultrasounds and an exam table. We bring the medications into this room. We have a little glass of water all ready to go. And um, I conduct the counseling session. That session is when Anthony and the patient talk about ways to prevent an unwanted pregnancy again, whether that's through contraception or a different method. They'll take the first medication uh, with me sitting here and um, observing that to make sure that they did indeed swallow the pill as directed. Once they leave the clinic, they will have to take more pills about a day later. This is a medical abortion, and the only type of abortion that the clinic provides. Even though abortion patients only make up about 5% of the clinic's clientele, Anthony is fighting to continue to provide the service in western Wyoming. She's one of the plaintiffs in the lawsuit preventing the state's trigger ban from going into effect. The plaintiffs are arguing that the ban is unconstitutionally vague and that the state's constitution protects Wyomingites' right to make health care decisions. The defendants argue those health care decisions don't include abortion. Anthony has spent nearly two decades lobbying for reproductive freedoms in Cheyenne, but she was hesitant at first to join the suit. I initially did not feel like I had the energy to be a plaintiff on a lawsuit of this nature. When I really did some soul searching in that regard, I realized that there was just no way I couldn't be a part of it. And the whole scenario just made me so angry. And anger is a very powerful motivator. Until now, the lawsuit has been winding its way through Teton County District Court. But on Wednesday, the same day I visited the clinic, a Teton County judge sent the case to the Wyoming Supreme Court. The state's highest court has 30 days to decide whether it'll pick up the case. The Teton County judge also denied a request from two Republican state representatives in pro-life nonprofit Wyoming Right to Life to weigh in on the case. The groups had told the court they should be able to intervene because they have a vested interest in the trigger ban. The lawmakers didn't respond to requests to comment about the decision, and Wyoming Right to Life's Marty Halverson declined to talk. But back in August, when the trigger ban was blocked, Halverson told Wyoming Public Radio that they will continue to fight for the ban. You can throw all the what-ifs at me that you want, but our position is it is never necessary. 
Wyoming's trigger ban currently includes exceptions for rape and incest. Pro-choice Wyoming leader Sharon Breitweiser says this is something lawmakers may restrict even more. The one thing I think we'll see is that they're go- they will try to remove the rape and incest exceptions from that current trigger law. If new restrictions go into effect, Wyomingites would need to travel to Colorado or Montana for abortion care. Wyoming is already an abortion desert, with most people in the eastern half of the state already traveling out of state for care. Back in the clinic, Dr. Anthony says it's the western half of the state in the eastern part of Idaho that will take a hit if the ban goes into place. If it becomes illegal in Wyoming, then we are a true desert for hundreds and hundreds of miles. Idaho, Montana, Utah, the Dakotas. Idaho banned abortion in late August. And Anthony says that ever since, most of her patients come from eastern Idaho and drive as far as four to five hours. Oh my gosh, I've had like six or seven from Haley Ketchum recently in the last few weeks. It is crazy. If the ban does go into effect, Anthony says that poor women and women of color will feel the effects of the decision the most. Most women will go a long ways at great personal expense, at great emotional expense, at great financial expense to obtain the service. But a lot of women simply will not be able to. Anthony says the fight can feel a bit hopeless, but that doesn't mean she'll stop fighting. A decision on the lawsuit won't come for months, so the clinic will continue to function normally until they no longer can. There's a new currency available in Wyoming. Demand for a form of gold bills is up in the state. Former KHOL reporter Will Walkie covered the story for Marketplace, and he tells us about a pawn shop he visited in Cheyenne. Well, Will, thanks so much for being here today. It's great to have you back on KHOL. Thank you for having me. So your reporting took you to a pawn shop in Cheyenne that sells goldbacks. These are bills with a small amount of gold in them that are being used in four states, including New Hampshire, Utah, Nevada, and Wyoming. Could you tell us the basics about this new currency? Yeah, it's funny, Hannah. It's sort of a new take on a very old strategy. I mean, people have been wanting to get precious metals really since precious metals were first discovered, not only as a use just in things like jewelry, but also just as a hedge against inflation. The idea being precious metals are have some sort of value as opposed to you know the U.S. dollar, which isn't backed by anything other than the U.S. government. It's just made of paper. So what this new currency does is it allows you to spend gold, one of the best, most valuable precious metals. Uh, it allows you to spend it in a way that you couldn't before. Because if you have a small ounce of gold, a troy ounce, which is worth over $1,700 right now, you know, that's like the size of a, a couple of coins, right? It's pretty hard to spend that in one place. If you take a flake of it worth 50 bucks and spend it at a store, that's really hard to spend in one place. You're going to lose that flake. What this bill does is it flattens out using some pretty revolutionary new technology, I would say, into a bill that's sort of the size of a dollar bill. And I actually talked with the vice president of sales and marketing at Goldbacks, Kevin Mills, who did a good job of explaining exactly how they make a Goldback bill. 
when you're making a gold back, you're having that transparent layer of plastic or polymer, and you're just laying atom by atom the gold onto that until it's exactly one thousandth of an ounce. So, so like Mills said, these are kind of new gold back bills, again, using new technology with an old strategy of getting precious metals. They are currently being sold in four states, in the mount, uh, three in the Mountain West, Nevada, Wyoming, and Utah, and also, oddly enough, New Hampshire. And you can buy and sell them often at kind of gold, silver, and pawn shops. But, uh, you know, a lot of businesses, you know, especially in Utah where this first started, including candy stores and chiropractors, say they accept them. Right. So I know they're only accepted in select places in Wyoming. The closest place in Jackson is Concho's Mountain Man Crafts in Bondurant. I'm curious, how did you initially catch on to this story? So I first caught on to it by just reading an article about it in the Cowboy State Daily, essentially saying this new Wyoming edition of Goldbacks was being released. And they're these beautiful bills. You know, they're golden with like horses and cowgirls etched onto it. And so I decided to check it out myself and kind of see what's the hype about. I drove over to Cheyenne, 45 minutes from where I'm at in Laramie, and went to a pawn shop that's sort of the main Goldbacks dealer in Cheyenne. And he talked to me a lot about how much hype there is around this you know the more he tells people the more people are coming in and wanting to buy these goldbacks either to try and spend them somewhere um, or as a sort of store of wealth yeah and i know these bills and other forms of gold and silver are seeing heightened interest with inflation how did experts explain this trend to you yeah it's hard to say you know sort of how different right now is in terms of people wanting to get forms of gold and silver compared to years past. Like I said, this is something that people have wanted to do a long time. But I think it is fair to say that since the pandemic and since inflation really started to um, kind of skyrocket as a result of the pandemic, you know, it's fair to say that there are more and more people that are interested in alternative currencies, whether that's Bitcoin or digital currencies or whether that's precious metals, you know, stuff that you can hold in your hand. And, you know, the the People that I talk to, Goldback says that they are essentially printing as much as they can and selling out every single month. And the same is happening on the ground in Cheyenne at the pawn shop that I went to. But, you know, when it comes to is this actually a good idea to hedge against inflation, you know, experts are pretty mixed on that and and pretty skeptical in general that precious metals like gold and silver are a good hedge against inflation. I asked a professor of currencies, Ishwar Prasad, he is at Cornell and he studies currencies all sorts for a living, what he thought about it. And he was pretty mixed about it. By and large, gold has limited um, ability to serve as an inflation hedge. It too tends to be affected by macroeconomic variables. One thing I will say, though, is that, you know, I bought a five gold back bill. Uh, it's worth about $20. Uh, you know, it has about $20 worth of gold in it, and I bought it uh, for $20, and I'm seeing it on eBay right now. I looked just before we talked, and it's being sold for about $26. So there actually is some value of collectible with goldbacks, just kind of because they're new and unique and very beautiful as a currency. Wow. Yeah, that's really interesting. And so I know your story for Marketplace asked, are these a good idea for customers? Where did you land on that question after all this reporting? Really, really mixed. I would say on the one hand, 
It's really interesting collectible. Like I said, it is kind of gaining value when it comes to like the sort of resale eBay market. On the other hand, the idea that it's like a really good idea to do what's called stacking, which is buy a ton of gold backs and use it as sort of a store of wealth in case, you know, the government goes down and we all need to start using an alternative currency other than the US dollar. That's probably not the best idea for a couple of reasons. One, as the professor Ishwar Prasad said, Gold is affected by inflation just like any other store of value. And also, you know, to get a gold back, to pay the price that you get to get a bill that is quote unquote spendable, you do have to pay a hefty premium. So if you were to want to create a store of wealth in gold, you might be better off just going to a pawn shop and getting a gold coin because if you don't want to spend it, then why are you paying a premium for it? Now, the question is, do you want to have it as a collectible? Okay, but you could also try and spend it at a store. I would say, you know, there are stores, especially in Utah, like I said, where this just started in Wyoming. There's a couple of interesting ones, some jewelry stores here in Laramie. You know, you could go to a gas station and say, I have this, you know, you could legally try and barter for that. That's not illegal to do. Um, the question is, is is that something that people will actually accept or will they just look at you weird like you're wasting their time? I think for now, it's probably more likely to be the latter. Uh, but as goldbacks become more common knowledge and as more people get their hands on them and become interested in them, I think it's fair to say that they could be something that more and more people are interested in. And as the as more people become interested in it, um, well, then that gives it some more legitimacy, I guess. Great. Well, we'll have to wait and see. Will, thanks so much for being here with me today. Thank you, Hannah. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Jackson Unpacked from KHOL. I'm reporter Hannah Mersbach, and this is our podcast featuring reporting and interviews on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and around the Mountain West. New episodes of Jackson Unpacked drop most Fridays on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up next, we go to opening day at Jackson Hole Mountain Resort. Skiers and snowboarders were excited to hit the slopes, but some felt the resort could do more to prioritize locals. Another ski season is underway. Jackson Hole Mountain Resort opened with five of 13 lifts spinning and 82 inches of snow. With some of the best early season powder and memory, Skiers and snowboarders say they have a lot to be grateful for. I'm so excited to get back on the snow and it looks like a beautiful day today and that there's some good snow and pretty good conditions for opening day. The snow is like pretty decent. Um, I'm excited for some of the other runs to really fill in because right now you can still kind of see like the, the stumps. That was Rachel Blondie and Maddie Gerard, who are all excited for the season to come. Still, cost and the availability of this year's passes was on the mountain goers' minds. This year, the resort's full season passes sold out in August, the earliest they've ever sold out. That includes the Rendezvous Peak Pass, which gives users unlimited access to the resort and 50 other ski areas around the world. At nearly $2,500, it's a steep price tag that was out of reach for many. Gerard says, she ended up going for the 10-day pass because at $1,200, it made the most financial sense. 
A blondie says she too opted out of the full season pass and went for a weekday only one. I always hope that the mountain um, caters more towards the locals and it feels like they're catering more towards visitors, um, which I think you can do both. I just think that the locals kind of run this community and this um, the ski resort itself. And I think that they should be the ones getting passes and they should work hard to do that. And I'm sad they did it this year. The resort's communication director, Eric Seymour, declined to comment. He directed KHOL to an article in the Jackson Hole News and Guide published in August. At that time, the resort's president, Mary Kate Buckley, explained they started limiting the number of people on the mountain because of COVID-19. The capacity limitations also come as more people visit the mountain with multi-resort ski passes. Richard Mogan is going on his 38th season at the resort and opted for the Grand Bypass, a season pass with blackout days. For him, neither cost nor availability were the issue. It's the mid-season crowds he wants to avoid. Mogan was excited to ski at the start of the season this last weekend when the crowds were thin and the sun was out. Just fun to be out in the snow again. Grand Targhee Resort in Alta opened November 18th, while Snow King Resort in Jackson opened on Saturday. Reporting for this story came from KHOL contributor Natalie Shahar. For over a decade, Mikey Franco has provided the community of Jackson Hole with some of the finest snowboards ever put to snow. In 2013, he launched Franco Snow Shapes to make custom skis and snowboards with state-of-the-art technology. In advance of Franco Snow Shapes' ninth anniversary this winter, Franco joined KHOL music director Jack Catlin in the KHOL studio. What's up, Mikey? Hey, how's it going? Good, man. Good yeah. to have you here. Thank you. Great to be here. So how did you go about developing your shaping style and what exactly goes into making a custom snow shape for someone? A big part of what influenced me was all the years that I studied how people behave, because that's my job, right? As an instructor, as a coach, as a trainer, my job was to not just teach someone how to ride it, but watch how they interacted with the equipment. And that was the whole Burton Learn to Ride program is let's, let's find boards that make this easier for people to learn. Cause we all know learning to snowboard in the first three days is brutal. And we wanted to try and reduce that impact because we were seeing so many people try and walk away cause they were getting hurt. So really that's kind of what inspired me the most is how the human body mechanically manipulates a snowboard and how you can alter the snowboard to work in conjunction with the skeleton. So that turns not necessarily makes it easier, just makes it more fluid, makes it more natural, makes it more a part of your feet, essentially, not this separate thing that you stand on and hope it gets you down the hill, <laughs> but something that's going to aid in your process and getting down the hill. So at the end of the day, you're less tired, you're more stoked, you had the best day of your life. And then, you know, for me, as far as incorporating that into our customers, for me, it's about getting to know these people. I am insanely passionate and emotional and mm. driven by how people behave and relationships, right? And so 
that's the thing I wanted to do is get inside people's heads and find out what is going to make this snowboard attached to their feet. And they're going to go, oh, my God, before they even made a turn to say this is it to have that connection, because that's what snowboarding means to me. It doesn't mean that to everyone. And that's fine. But to me, it's my entire existence, my <laughs> life, my identity, my life. And that's, I think, who our customers end up being mm-hmm. is that same person that they're drawn towards that, that snowboarding is such an important part of their life that it's more than the snowboard's more than a tool, mm-hmm. right? It's more than just a saw. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's a piece of art at the same time. It's more than just, oh, I'm going to go out and ride for a couple hours a year. It, it's no, I need to go snowboarding. Yeah. And it's uh, in a lot of ways, it's an extension of yourself. Yeah. I mean, well, no question for me. And mm-hmm. I think that's the customers who get drawn towards us mm-hmm. as well. I don't care if anyone else in the world likes your snowboard, but you. Mm-hmm. I could care less if someone gets on it and says, oh, my God, that's awful. That doesn't matter to me as long as the person I made it for <laughs> says my life has just been changed. That's what we do. So it's the nine year anniversary of Franco's Snow Shapes this year. And your motto is keeping the soul of Jackson Hole snowboarding alive. In your opinion, what is the soul of Jackson Hole? And can you highlight some of your favorite Franco Snow Shapes moments over the years? I mean, I think it's clear that soul is just the people, right? I mean, my snowboards, while I like to put my soul into the snowboards, it's a snowboard, right? At the end of the day, what's important is the person standing on it. And I feel like, you know, my background is pretty humble growing up and I'm still a part of that. That's still part of me. But I do sell snowboards that are incredibly expensive because they cost so much to make. So to me, being a part of that community has been really important that I don't lose sight of how I grew up and how how I got into this. That's why at the shack, you know, our our tunes are when we do edge and waxes, we give locals huge discounts and we take care of the local people because I want to make sure that you don't come into our store and you got to spend $250 to get an edge and a wax. <laughs> you know, I want it to be uh, accessible to everyone because I have clients on both ends, right? That can't afford multiple snowboards of mine and they're incredible friends of mine. And I have friends who, you know, can barely afford a $350 snowboard and they're dear friends of mine. And like, it's all part of the community. Mm-hmm. We're all in it. Yeah. And it's, it, that's why I say it's the ski area, bar and a church are the only places where you see Dirt bags and billionaires sitting beside <laughs> each other doing the same thing. That's true. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's snowboarding. That's, that's skiing too. It's like we all share this passion for this place, irregardless of our background. Well, thank you, Mikey Franco, for coming in. If you have never met the man, please go to the shack and say hello. It's a great community hub of snowboarder skiers, dirt bags, and billionaires. That's right. <laughs> we'll take them all. Franco Snow Shapes is located at the corner of Granite Loop and Operevu Road in Teton Village, right near the base of Jackson Hole Mountain Resort. You can visit francosnowshapes.com for more information. Make sure to visit 891kitchwell.org for more music, news, and culture. I'm Jack Catlin, and this is KHOL Jackson. Colorado River's foundational legal document just turned 100 years old. The agreement among seven Western states, including Wyoming, was groundbreaking for its time. But as KUNC's Luke Runyon reports, the Colorado River Compact continues to contribute to the water crisis in the Southwest.
Eric Kuhn walks along a gravel path above the Colorado River in Glenwood Springs, Colorado. The river below is turbid and choppy as it winds its way through town, past hot springs resorts and whitewater outfitters. Here we are about a whole 150 miles downstream of the headwaters of the Colorado River. Kuhn is the former head of the Colorado River District, a water agency based on the state's western slope. He's the co-author of the book Science Be Damned a detailed examination of how the river's foundational agreement, the Colorado River Compact, came together a century ago. When I think of rivers, I think of, well, where's where's the water coming from and where's it going? And what's happened to this river over the last 100 years? In the 19-teens, European settlers were moving into some of the most arid reaches of the country. The Southwest was rapidly developing, but one thing was missing a stable water supply. The river's flows were extreme, transitioning quickly from flood to drought. Kuhn says fledgling western states saw the river as a problem to solve. We needed to control nature. We needed to uh, figure out a way to make this river from a menace to a natural resource. That mentality is what brought leaders from those states and the federal government to Santa Fe in 1922 to hammer out the agreement. It divided up the river's water and promised the states a fixed amount to use. Kuhn says the negotiators chose political expediency over science. If we, everyone agrees that there's enough water to meet all our needs, dividing it up is gonna be very easy. If there's not enough water, then it's gonna create complications. We're a hundred years later and obviously our priorities are different than the priorities of the people who existed at that time. Kathy Jacobs is a water policy professor at the University of Arizona. The priority then was irrigation water for the Southwest's small farms. They weren't thinking of what a future Phoenix metro area might need, or how their decisions would affect the Grand Canyon's ecosystems. I don't think that it's particularly flexible, and we're in a situation where flexibility will probably be key. And that inflexibility is still being felt today, Jacob says. Because more water exists on paper than in the river, its biggest reservoirs, Lakes Mead and Powell, continue to decline to record lows. For Heather Tanana, a University of Utah law professor and citizen of the Navajo Nation, the compact also represents how indigenous people have been excluded from river management over time. Water for many tribes It's not a commodity. It's something sacred. It's something that's integral to not just human life, but the broader community and environmental well-being. Collectively, tribes hold rights to more than 20% of the river's water, but only recently have calls for a tribal seat at the negotiating table been seriously considered by the states and the federal government. That's been a shift in the last, really, I think, five years of recognizing tribal interests their legal rights, and beyond that, that tribes can be a part of problem solving. So with all of its flaws, why would anyone want to keep using the compact? Well, Kevin Wheeler, a river management fellow at the University of Oxford in the UK, says more water leaders are choosing to ignore some of the compact's math. Newer agreements show some willingness to cut back on overall water use voluntarily. Even though no individual state wants to take the hit, they all recognize the need to take the hit together. 
And what the compact serves as now, he says, is a way to keep all of the users returning to the negotiating table. What's often been said is we're not going to get rid of it, but we may have to bend the hell out of it to make it work. And figure out a way to bend it before the whole system breaks. I'm Luke Runyon in Grand Junction, Colorado. That's it today on Jackson Impact. Original music for the show is performed by the local band Strumbucket. I'm Hannah Mersbach, and this is KHOL Jackson. <laughs>